if you want to be a cynic, and I am, I think that the uh, government has identified companies as firstly cash cows. So when they have been able to cooperate internationally with the Department of Justice, uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, EU regulators, they have got a lot of money in uh, under deferred prosecution agreements or by plea deals or whatever. And that has been in the billions and they like to be part of that. And so that forms their view that they need to go after companies. That's where the money is. Uh, individuals don't have that. And secondly, um, that if they do it cooperatively, they get much more out of it than doing it locally. Hi, welcome to Disputed, a Norton Rose Fulbright podcast with Ailsa Robertson from Calgary and myself, Erin Brown from Ottawa. This will be Ailsa's last episode before she goes on maternity leave. Ted Brooke and I are excited to be stepping in to co-host the Disputed podcast alongside Andrew McComb for the next little while. Since I will be appearing in more episodes, let me briefly introduce myself. I am a senior associate based in Ottawa with a regulatory practice covering issues such as international trade, economic sanctions, export controls, competition, and procurement. Avid listeners may remember me from appearing as a guest in our episode about online advertising and social media influencers. Now, let's dive into today's episode. Today, we are looking at significant changes to anti-corruption laws and enforcement powers that are taking place in the United Kingdom and their impact on Canadian and other companies outside the UK. There are three key changes that we cover in this episode that businesses in Canada and abroad need to pay attention to. The first is a reform to corporate criminal liability in the UK, the first time in over 50 years, with the introduction of a statutory senior manager test, much like the one introduced in Canada in 2003, that will make it easier to prosecute companies for economic crime offences committed by their senior employees. The second change is the introduction of a corporate offence of failing to prevent fraud or money laundering. The third relates to enforcement powers. The first two legal developments are happening at the same time as leadership and strategic changes to the UK Serious Fraud Office, or the SFO, which signal a new emphasis on greater cooperation with other regulators, data sharing, and the power to compel information from corporations outside the UK. Why are these changes relevant to Canadian businesses? Because they are going to have a very broad extraterritorial reach. To talk us through these changes and their significance, we welcome two lawyers from our white collar crime team based in our London, UK office. Neil O'May leads the corporate crime practice in London and advises and defends some of the world's most prominent organizations and individuals in investigations and prosecutions involving international fraud, corruption, and market abuse. Joining Neil is Naomi Miles, a senior associate white collar crime lawyer who focuses on complex multi-jurisdictional investigations, risk mitigation, and compliance. Her practice covers all aspects of business crime, from money laundering to market abuse and manipulation to whistleblowing and modern slavery. Neil, Naomi, thanks very much for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for having us. Okay, before we get into the detail on this topic, I wondered if you could start by highlighting the significance of what we're going to talk about to a Canadian audience. So why do Canadian and other foreign companies outside the UK need to be aware of changes in UK anti-corruption laws and corporate criminal liability? That's, that's a very good question. Um, good place to start. So I think it's worth explaining or just highlighting that the UK Bribery Act, um, since it was brought into force in July 2011, has had a significant impact on foreign companies. And 
certain offences can extend to any company wherever incorporated, which carries on a part or all of its business in the UK. And the changes that we're going to be talking about today and are going to be introduced imminently um, will have very wide extraterritorial reach, much wider actually than the Bribery Act. And so it's going to make it much easier to prosecute companies for criminal offences. Yeah, and and it comes um, on the back of a a view taken by uh, the government that companies are still um, doing bad things. And the only way of dealing with that is either to hit their pocket uh, substantially or to uh, prosecute individuals on the board and senior managers. And and it's really a rollout to uh, extend the reach of all that that has been perceived to be going on, um, not only in the UK, but in any uh, business that is either has victims in the UK, is carrying on a business in the UK and is uh, undertaking international fraud or whatever, uh, and anybody who's using the UK in some part of that fraud or uh, bribery or whatever. And so it's it's a really big push and probably um, is for the first time in the last, you know, 40 or so years, the greatest extension on the ability to prosecute companies and individuals that there has been. And I think there's also um, a sort of bigger international cooperation context that we should flag. So we've got the DOJ um, continuing to reinforce its message of very close international cooperation with other agencies. Foreign corruption is an absolute focus of the Biden administration and international cooperation is key to overcoming it. And so our listeners might well ask, why is that relevant? And it's just, fact of the matter is that corruption is often multi-jurisdictional, particularly with international businesses. So changes to English law combined with renewed cooperation and enforcement efforts by the SFO and the DOJ are just going to make it much more effective um, for prosecutions to be successful. Okay, so I think I think we've given our Canadian audience some good context as to why they should be listening here. I've seen, um, you know, increased enforcement action potential, uh, potentially making it easier to prosecute, um, combined with that uh, increased enforcement uh, effort. So Canadian companies should really be listening to this, um, listening to these updates, particularly given uh, the extra uh, territorial nature of, of certain of these changes. So let's dive right in. What are the changes? So I, I think there I think there are three uh, major changes that will come into effect. Uh, some at the end of this year, and others with a longer grace period, perhaps into the middle of of next year. And and they are, firstly, um, to be able to hold a company liable when um, senior managers of that company um, are involved in wrongdoing. Previously. The only way of doing so um, was to try to find the directing mind and will of the company. It was a concept which was very difficult to identify, but very high level. Uh, Economic crime is covered now by any senior manager and corporate liability is uh, ascribed to the company if it involves any senior manager in the company. And we'll come on to define what a senior manager is, but it kind of doubles, trebles, multiplies by 10 the number of people who uh, effectively are um, going to uh, cause liability to be ascribed to a a company. The the second one is, and following on from what Naomi said, is the extension of 
failing to prevent. That is a company that fails to prevent bribery, international bribery, um, has itself uh, an offence uh, which brings with it fines, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're going to extend that to failing to prevent fraud and failing to prevent money laundering. And so, again, the number of offences of international origin uh, or otherwise is, is multiplied by double, three times, ten times. Um, finally, just on, on the back of that, there is an extension of the powers both internationally and locally to uh, obtain documentation in, in response to any of these investigations. Do we do we have a definition of senior manager? Yes. So a, a senior manager, um, they're, they're going to look at the role and responsibilities of an employee. Um, so it will cover instances where a senior manager is someone who plays a significant role in the decision making about the organisation. Um, but it's 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 much more fact based as opposed to uh, an exhaustive prescriptive definition. And I think in our Canadian, in our similar Canadian uh, provision, there's something, you know, some language to the effect of like acting within the scope of their authority. Is Do you have a sense that there'll be, there'll be anything like that where the where the senior officer really has to be sort of like doing something that falls within their normal scope of authority rather than sort of like an, an official or, or an officer gone rogue? Uh, I, I mean, I, I think that the officer gone rogue will fall outside of that. Um, it, but uh, it's somebody who will effectively bind the company um, in whatever they're doing. And the two words that they endlessly repeat within the legislation is, is significant role and substantial part of the business. So it's somebody who's head of a division, the sales division, or deputy head of the division who has oversight of that part of the business, which is a significant part of the business and they're not just uh, the runaround who takes uh, orders and carries out those orders it's the person who takes the decisions and makes the orders and is part of this all to really get at massive international corporations like it was there was there a disconnect or a or a um, an inequality previously with respect to how easy it was to prosecute, say, like a smaller organization where there's, you know, it's easier and to have a directing mind and identify who the directing mind is versus these major international corporations where there's, you know, different levels of, is, is that part of the motivation for this change? Absolutely. It's the, the test because it was first established in the 1970s, um, reflected business as it was generally done then. It, has, it hasn't kept up with the realities of modern international corporations where you've got huge decentralized decision making. So actually what we ended what we've got at the moment is an inequality in the law where it's much easier to prosecute a small company in comparison with very, very large international organizations as our, our clients will well know. You have so many subcommittees and subdivisions, it's 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 a sprawling, often sprawling organizational structure. But there's other reasons as well. Um, it's it's also partly because the government is keen to provide legis legislative certainty. And it doesn't, I think they're also very keen to achieve good corporate governance, as, as Neil was saying earlier. Um, they're looking to try and create a, a culture change, much like we saw with the Bribery Act. 
And how does this test apply? So if we're looking at senior managers, uh, the reality for many corporations in today's world is that you know the, the entire team might not be located in the UK. So what if only a portion of the you know the one senior officers in the UK, um, one is in Canada, and they're communicating like how much of the offense has to be in the UK in order to fall under this new provision? It's only really a fingernail that needs to be in the UK. So long as some part of the acts that constitute the offence uh, take part in the UK, that's probably enough for jurisdiction of uh, the, the um, wider economic crime offences. And that's by way of example, if you have a Canadian uh, registered company headquartered in Ottawa, the senior manager who's dealing with sales or whatever, is in Ottawa. Uh, he's uh, either frauding or doing some economic uh, crime, which is in, let's say, um, Southeast Asia. Uh, and he uses a UK bank, uh, even if that UK bank is entirely an innocent dupe, um, because the money passes through it. Uh, part of the act is in the UK, and there's jurisdiction. So the, the key point for um our listeners uh, of international companies is this, that the organisation does not have to be incorporated in the UK to be found liable. And all that is needed is that just some, just part, doesn't have to be all of the offence is committed in the UK by a senior manager. And it doesn't matter whether that senior manager is sitting in the UK or elsewhere in the world. The, the crucial bit is that past events has been committed in the UK. And the economic crimes that we're talking about, I mean, how is this kind of broad definition of economic crime? I and mean, what's what's likely to fall under this? It's very wide. So at the moment, we've got already a very long list of specified economic, economic crimes, and they cover everything from bribery offences um, through to tax offences, fraud, um, various offences under the Theft Act, market manipulation, terrorism, sanction offences. It's a long list. But what's also interesting is the government has committed at the first available opportunity to remove the reference to economic crimes and expand it to offences. So feasibly, we're going to see that long list of economic crimes also incorporate the likes of sexual offences. Do you think modern slavery act offences could potentially also fall under that too? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I would say so. Interesting. And the chilling effect of it is meant to be that a senior manager, if if they are up to no good uh, in down the line in any offence, uh, the corporate also carries the can, and the corporate pays for that individual's wrongdoing. So before we move on to our next uh, topic, let's come back to this question of what impact will this have on Canadian businesses? So obviously we, you know, for example, something that's jumping to mind for me is that in Canada, we have an integrity regime whereby companies can become debarred from uh, contracting with the federal government if they're convicted of certain corruption, bribery, competition act type offenses. So anything that will make it more likely for companies to be convicted um, seems really significant from a Canadian perspective. What else uh, What else do companies have to keep in mind in terms of, of the sort of impact uh, of this uh, of this 
you know, provision that's going to make it easier to um, to potentially convict corporations. So I think uh, I, I think the debarment part of it is is now global, uh, and certainly within the EU and the UK, uh, that is a very important uh, factor when any uh, company is considering its liability, which is now extended. I, I think the other part of it is that the fact that somebody who has been found to be a senior manager and is uh, committing wrongdoing is going to exponentially increase the level of fines against companies um, and make it much easier to bring the prosecution and easier to do a deal, either a deferred prosecution or a, a strict um, plea deal with them, so that it will be fast, furious and easy for uh, the, um, the authorities to deal with this. Um, I think I think really the only way of dealing with something like that is to have very strict procedures in place on an HR basis, on a financial um, control basis in order to prevent any part of your senior management undertaking any potentially um, risky area without uh, triple authentication of that um, particular process. And something that's key to that is also conducting risk assessments that you can actually identify where potential issues could arise and then putting in place bespoke policies and procedures to mitigate the risk of some sort of offence being committed. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's interesting what you uh, say about there being a kind of cultural change or trying to change or trigger a shift in corporate culture. And I think that plays in nicely to the failure to prevent offences, which you also mentioned, which are part of these these changes. So moving on to this failure to prevent fraud, failure to prevent money laundering, can you talk a bit about what's going on here? So so I think we've talked about the the issue that the companies are now going to be liable and have to keep an eye on their senior managers across the board. But the failing to prevent offences extend that yet again and say that you've got to keep an eye um, and more than an eye, you've got to have uh, reasonable and adequate procedures in place to prevent fraud by any employee or any um, agent or anyone who carries on a service for you uh, outside the jurisdiction, if 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 it is, um, uh, in, in the economic crime sphere. And so you must have a system of uh, checks, uh, tone from the top uh, and and a number of other uh, factors in in a, a procedure which will is designed specifically to prevent economic fraud and if you don't have that and if there is a fraud by the lowest of individuals for the benefit of the company um, that's a slam dunk as far as the prosecution is concerned mm-hmm. I, I think the 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 other part of it is this that when the failing to prevent bribery first came in um, it was quite a big ask for companies to get procedures in place to prevent bribery. And um, we can talk about what is necessary in that compliance program, but it was a big ask. And there was an 18-month grace period for companies to get their act together. This is an even bigger ask. And, and what they're effectively doing is um, they're requiring the company to be the policeman of other associated companies that are doing work or services for them. And so the 
procedures that are in place are invasive to those other organizations, but they're as important because the associated person or the associated company, the service company, whatever it is, uh, if they commit them a wrongdoing, it's just as bad as if you committing a wrongdoing in the, in the, in the mothership. I think there's a lot to unpack in, in what you were just saying, but one of my questions is, you know, is this a specific defense? Um, and if so, how efficient do you think that this defense of, you know, having reasonable procedures will actually be in avoiding prosecution? So uh, with the failing to prevent offences, that is failing to prevent economic crime, it is a specific defense that if at the time you had an adequate procedure in place or a reasonable procedure in place, um, then you would not be found uh, guilty of the offence. However, uh, the first question is, what is an adequate uh, procedure uh, in place? And in circumstances where a bribe has been paid, a fraud has been committed, a misrepresentation has been made in the box in the uh, insurance market, you're in you're really on the back foot to show that that was that was adequate. And so far in uh, the English courts, uh, there has been no successful defense mounted. It is, of course, essential that you have it. And the better it is, the more your mitigation and the more the less likely you are to have the business of a prosecution. Um, but it is, I think, the driver for being a policeman. It's a driver for being for having the procedures and having a good compliance and preventing it internally. But the reality is it's probably not going to be much of a defense when it comes to it. Interesting. I sometimes wonder if the regulators put those, you know, specific defenses in more as an encouragement to companies to put the procedure in place, do the, you know, have the mitigation rather than actually being that efficient as a defense. And I think what you're saying sort of supports that. What would that procedure need to look like? Presumably it's not a, you know, a, a phoned in compliance procedure that's gathering dust, dust in a drawer somewhere. Absolutely not. The government will be producing guidance and we would expect in that that there'll be something that goes to what reasonable prevention procedures are might look like, but it won't be prescriptive. It won't be um, a, a sort of tick box list. And that would be very deliberate because the government appreciates that um, these procedures will need to be proportionate and what is right for one company will not be right for the next. It also needs to be tailored to the industry in a particular risk profiles as much as the size um, of, of these companies. But I think we can look, we can expect that it will be perhaps quite similar to the six principles that we've got uh, in the guidance to the Bribery Act. So it'll be things like tone from the top and uh, communications, clear communications, um, including training to employees, you might also be, look to think about your monitoring and review um, processes, carrying out risk assessments. Um, due diligence is important. Um, and also, we, we have a lot of clients, and I'm sure our audience will be familiar with this, who, who put contractual procedures in place as well to try and um, reinforce their commitment to, in that case, anti-bribery. But in the future, as we were discussing, it'll be wider than that. Um, to really to really reinforce their commitment to that vis-a-vis -vis their contractual parties. So it's a, it'll, it'll be a broad range of guiding principles, I suspect, even if it's not necessarily called principles. 
Um, but it, it will probably look quite similar to the guidance that we've got with Bribery Act. I think it's important and interesting also to flag um, that these failure to prevent offences don't actually require a conviction for the underlying event, alleged offence. No, which, not as currently drafted anyway. Yeah. What would be the threshold to prove that something, a, a fraudulent activity had taken place if there hasn't actually been a conviction of that act with regards to that activity? So I, th- I think the uh, the threshold would be the usual one of beyond reasonable doubt. Um, the reality is that certainly in bribery at the moment, and we would assume in, in fraud, companies tend to enter into uh, discussions over deferred prosecution agreements. And then um, there is a, a, a consensus between the prosecutor and the company as to whether the bribe has been paid, for instance, or the fraud done. And it may be in everybody's interest to get this done tomorrow as opposed to three years' time. And so in reality, the uh, uh, the threshold will be lower. Just, just talking about courts, um, when this issue, what is an adequate procedure, what is a reasonable procedure, comes to court uh, and it's, it's discussed by way of mitigation uh, to um, a failing to prevent offence, the three things that of all the things they look for and gets the most mitigation is one tone from the top, two active um, auditing, and three invasive uh, analysis into the associated party or the company down the line. So, um, as Erin said, the one in the the procedure that's in the bottom tray of the drawer uh, doesn't get anywhere at all. Um, the one that uh, doesn't has a whole load of training uh, online and you can tick boxes and get through it doesn't get anywhere at all. You've got to have people going out with a, 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 an analysis, which is based upon a risk assessment to say, this is a really difficult area. This is where we've got a real, real risk. And so we've got really good procedures and we've audited them. And look, we had two instances where we dealt with it. And the problem is evidence, because you need to be able to say, the here, here is evidence of, of that good culture and of us committing to an anti-corruption, strong, zero-tolerance approach to, to corruption and, and being strongly anti-corruption in everything that we do. And a policy of procedures is, is one of those. It is not the be-all and end-all, as we've been discussing. You, can't, you cannot just have a piece of paper and go, right, we're done, pop that away and move on to the next thing. But certainly it's what guides everyone in how they behave it's what will be referred to in disciplinary proceedings it's it, it's what should be referred to when thinking about which organizations you're going to be going into business with and so it is important as long as it's actually used and um, we see a lot of um policies and procedures i saw one once which went and, and this was just the handbook on anti-corruption of this particular organisation, and it ran to 120 plus pages. No one is reading that. You so it's we see extremes, um, but a good policy and procedure is one that is easy to read, um, is actually practical, um, and it, it guides the, the the reader, the person who's actually doing business for for this particular company, to what they need quickly. And if if they need more information, they know where to go to within the company, who to speak to. Yeah. And 
bringing it back to uh, just keeping in mind our, our Canadian listeners, what is the territorial scope of these offences? When we're talking about the failure to prevent offences, why is it so important for businesses outside the UK to be cognizant of them? Yeah, it's it's a really good question, a really good point, which we we want to stress, which is that this that the unlike Section Seven of the Bribery Act, which is that the failure to prevent um, offence under the UK Bribery Act, which only applies to companies incorporated in the UK or that carry on a business here. In in this situation, um, the failure to prevent fraud offence contains no such limitation on where the organisation is incorporated or formed. In other words, it throws open the doors to wide territorial um, scope um, and therefore quite easily can bite on companies outside of the of the UK. Yeah. So where there's a Canadian company um, that is uh, using uh, individuals elsewhere in the world, either by way of an agent or a supplier, and any part of the fraud, any part of the fraud occurs in the UK, even if it is through a bank, even even if it is uh, one person traveling through and, and being part of the arrangement, um, that will give a jurisdiction to the UK courts. The victim actually doesn't need to be a UK uh, corporate or a UK national. It can be a victim outside the jurisdiction, done by somebody outside the jurisdiction, but using something within the UK, whether a person or a bank account or something else, that's it. And what about the flip side, if it nothing is necessarily used in the UK, but there is a UK victim, would that also count? That is the second string, yeah. If there is a UK victim or a part of the uh, acts were done in the UK, it's an or, not an and. And could a UK victim be something as broad as the UK taxpayer? Um, that would be very broad, but at the moment, certainly, if there if there is an effect uh, on the market uh, and the investors are in the UK and they would have a claim. Uh, as a result of the market being moved in a way that was the result of fraud, that would certainly ground uh, jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. uh, often in these regulatory findings, uh, where there is a corporate liability, uh, either by way of failing to prevent or by actually committing the offence because it's going to be a senior manager, the follow-on litigation that is attached to that, if it is in the UK, allows the whole of the civil uh, arena to be opened up to those people who have been affected. And obviously the civil uh, jurisdiction is much wider and broader. And so they latch it on to the regulatory finding and you know that's millions and billions as well. So I think the, the final area that we wanted to discuss was the was the SFO. And I, I think you alluded before to the expansion of its powers. Um, so you know, happy to hear your views on that and also some predictions maybe from the future where we're going from here. After five years, the director of the Serious Fraud Office is changing and the new director has been appointed, uh, who is uh, a former uh, assistant commissioner at the Scotland Yard. So he's a police officer as opposed to traditionally a lawyer. And uh, I think that given uh, his background and what he said about um, his 
future role over the next three to five years is that he will be very focused on improving the investigation process within the serious fraud office and getting it happening quicker. We've just had two cases that have been rolling on for between eight and 10 years of investigation uh, concluded without a prosecution that has been massively disruptive to those companies and massively uh, uh, resource heavy. And uh, I think that the criticisms that have been raised against the SFO over the period mean that those investigations will be well, at least halved, but really brought in line with the DOJ. Um, the, the other thing is that I think as a police officer, uh, very traditionally, um, they uh, will uh, be keen to prosecute companies and individuals. Um, so I think there's been a little bit of a perception that uh, companies have been um, prosecuted and the individuals have been let go let's say that that's how the public have perceived it i think that will change and on the basis of the best behavior modification is to um threaten uh, jail with to, to the individuals who are part of the operation then that's what will uh come through and it is right that the um number of people who have been prosecuted and convicted has been really appalling compared to uh, other jurisdictions. And I, I think that will change. And I think the third thing that will change is that um, whilst presently the Serious Fraud Office has a very niche, separate uh, arrangement, being both the investigator and the prosecutor, uh, all wrapped up in one organisation, there are moves afoot, I think, which this director uh, would not be um, unhappy with, to subsume it into a much broader uh, um, national criminal national crime agency uh, which deals with triaging all the various parts of economic crime to bring all the um, international and national um, resources together in one place and so um, not averse at all to international um, uh, investigations uh, and not averse to uh, putting all the resources front end into investigations as much as into prosecutions of corporates and individuals. I think that's where we're going. Yeah. And on top of that, we've also got an increase in powers for the of the SFO to compel information. Yes, um, indeed. We, we've had um, some scraps in court which have uh, identified quite uh, serious limitations to the ability for pre-charge during investigations, the SFO to reach out to get material um, outside of the bribery regime, so in normal fraud and extra-jurisdictionally, there are a number of measures that are coming in to the, uh, this uh, new bill going through, which extend that uh, to fraud investigations and also extra-jurisdictionally much, make it much easier. Um, but the reality of the of the matter is that actually in the last five years, and one of the things that the SFO has shown is that certainly with um, the whole of North America and uh, with the EU, the uh, cases where there is no uh, forced obligation or power necessary, uh, and there has been a huge amount of local data trawled in cases which is then passed on under the usual gateways for prevention of crime and those are if you like as 
as effective as the ones as the powers that are under the economic uh, crime bill. Mm -hmm. But if you think about it, um, you know, a, a an international um, criminal investigation mounted by the UK, you can do it two ways. You can serve uh, documents uh, and serve uh, notices on the corporate that's uh, based in Ottawa um, and and try and extract it that way. Or you can have a word with your mate in the RCMP to pay them a visit. Uh, it's much more likely that they will get it either voluntarily or under some scheme. There'll be an agreement of some kind to share through a gateway and it comes over much, much more easily. And that that's that's what we see all the time now. I wonder what your thoughts are when it comes to um, whether companies should self-report in these circumstances. I mean, given these potentially new powers to compel information and the expanded scope of these offences, what are your thoughts on whether a company should self-report if they suspect that there's been a failure to prevent fraud? And would that advice differ if it was a foreign company as opposed to a UK company? Um, I, I think two things to that. I think it, it is right that this bill, with the powers and with the mutual legal assistance arrangements, makes it easier to, to investigate and therefore is a stick in to hold over a company to say, why don't you self-report quicker because we'll just find you out anyway. However, the carrot is just not there. Um, all a lot of Fandango has been um, heard about the merits of deferred prosecution agreements. Actually, they are painful, painful experiences. And companies have to go through the balancing act of what is the risk that we will be prosecuted uh, against uh, the risk of us uh, effectively handing a prosecution to a regulator that would not have otherwise been able to get to us. Because in the UK, at least, and this differs, I think, to North America, um, the, uh, the the reduction in level of fine uh, when you self-report is not significant uh, as opposed to pleading guilty. It's the same. So if you're prosecuted and you plead guilty, it's the same effectively as if you self-report. So the incentive is not there. There are uh, moves afoot to, to make the incentive much greater and therefore you get much greater discount by self-reporting and self-reporting early, but they're not in place yet. So we've had a fascinating discussion today on a number of different changes. What I'm, what I'm hearing overall is more powers for the SFO, more actual offenses than the new failure to prevent fraud offenses or offense, and then a change in corporate liability that will make it probably, you know, presumably easier to prosecute companies. So a lot of, you know, changes afoot here to make companies um, really, uh, you know, potentially subject to, to some greater enforcement uh, and greater risk here. Uh, so what are your, you know, any final, uh, any final thoughts to, to pull all this together for, for, in, for companies in terms of next steps or, or um, recommendations? Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Just so all of those things combined um, mean that I think our, our, our clients and, and international companies, Canadian companies, it'd be well for them, good for them to to have to, to think about what steps they can take to get ahead of this. And um, by that, I mean, look at what is in place already. What When was the last time that a risk assessment was conducted? 
an audit was conducted, look at what your, your supply chains and your, your contractual obligations and, and where your risk arises, look at the locations in which you're conducting business and, and think about what can be done now to mitigate the risk of these offences being committed within your house. Um, and like we said, yes, that's policies and procedures, but it's also about over-the-top commitment, training, um, and an overall good corporate culture, which has a zero tolerance to corruption. Yeah, I mean, th- th- there's no way around um, the the greater ability to be prosecuted. Um, the only way of dealing with it is prevention. Um, and if you put uh, a, a lot of effort and unfortunately money into the prevention, in the long term, that must be the only answer to uh, avoiding massive uh, fines for the actions of your associated companies and your uh, senior managers. Mm-hmm. Um, well, Neil and Amy, thank you so, so much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation and really, really important for uh, businesses in, in many, many jurisdictions in which um, we operate to pay attention to these issues. So we'll watch this space. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. It was a very interesting uh, discussion. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Disputed. If you'd like to find out more about this topic or how to contact our guests, please visit nortonrosefulbright.com slash disputed. Also, if you have any questions, feedback, or topics that you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us at disputed at nortonrosefulbright.com. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to Disputed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.